Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated, and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country, to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today's episode number 77 of Feast Your Ears, and uh, start off with uh, a segment I'm trying to work into the show, what I cook this week. So this week I made salmon two ways. I had a couple sides of some beautiful salmon from Bristol Bay, sockeye salmon uh, from Alaska, and uh, decided to marinate one in a mixture of a little bit of miso and some soy sauce and some mirin, Uh, and then the other one I marinated in some sort of quasi-green goddess salad dressing that I made, but I don't remember what was in it. So I found it in a little jar in the back of the fridge, decided to toss it all in there. Uh, And so two separate pieces of salmon, not together, Um, but I cooked them in foil. I've been going back and forth over the years about how I like to cook salmon, and uh, in foil, I find in the oven at about 300, 350, um, does a really good job of not drying it out. I find with a a salmon like a sockeye that's so lean that if you put it on the grill or if you broil it and you forget about it, which happens to me a lot with my kids, then it gets really dry and kind of bad. So if you you steam it in foil, I find it uh, was pretty delicious. The other thing that happened this week, uh, food-wise, for me is that I rediscovered, as I feel like I do about once a year or every other year, how awesome Kalustians is, uh, and perhaps my guest might have some thoughts on that. Uh, we'll get to that in a few minutes. But if you don't know it, uh, you can find them online if you're not in New York. But if you're in New York, you should get yourself to Lexington and 29th Street and go to Kalustians. It is the most amazing uh, spice and food store I've ever encountered. So today on Feast Your Ears, I have Joe M.F. Brown in the studio joining me. Uh, I've been looking forward to this episode for months. Joe is a friend of mine and is the editor-in-chief of Popular Science, one of America's oldest magazines, uh, ringing in at a mere 145 years old. Uh, I think that's a pretty good, pretty good run. Joe was previously at Wired and Gizmodo, um, and uh, I hope he doesn't mind this description, but I would describe Joe as a polymath of sorts, sort of a renaissance man of our uh, modern times. And uh, he's into cooking, Formula One, watches, motorcycles, fishing, travel, uh, and I'm sure that he can probably play chess, knit, keep time on a drum set, and a lot more. So thanks for joining me, Joe. Nice to be here, and I can't knit. I've actually been trying to learn to crochet for five years, but I'm really bad at the counting. I kind of zone out. So the only thing I can make is a scarf. All right. And my scarves are so bad that Christine, my wife, won't even wear them. (laughs) 
They're awful. <laughs> Even around the house? I mean, I, I knitted one when we went, or crocheted one when we went cross-country together, and it was winter, and she wore no scarf. <laughs> it was so bad. I actually don't know how to knit either. I've never learned. My mother was a big knitter, and I feel like I should have learned from her before mm-hmm. she passed away, but my brother learned, and he's a he's a serious knitter. I feel like... I want to love crocheting more because the kit is so much smaller. Oh, yeah. And, and I don't know what it is, um, but I, I like smaller things in general. So I like small cars, small fabric creation <laughs> sets. Um, I, I feel like there's something Is it the, it's the economy of, of tools? It's that I could bring it with me anywhere. Right. You know? Like right. if you're on an airplane, if you've ever been on an airplane with somebody who knits, you're like, Bleh. It's almost as bad as getting the quote-unquote service dog sitting next to you. Right. It's like somebody pulls out, like, two giant stabby things, and then all of a sudden it's <laughs> flapping their arms like they're trying to fly the plane from their seat, all in the service of making a beautiful handmade good that you don't even get to own. Right. Right. So, sorry. Have you ever asked someone sitting next to you who's knitting if they'd knit you something on the flight? Absolutely. <laughs> it has not worked out yet, though. You, know, you, you, you hint. You're like, man, that looks really nice. Coming at nine? <laughs> Uh, yeah, my mother used to be that lady. You probably, maybe you sat next to her. Uh, she used to knit on planes a lot and on long drives. Oh. Um, you know, my one of my uh, sort of you know everlasting or I guess like memories of childhood road trips is my dad driving and my mom sitting in the front seat knitting. And she could she could pretty reliably knit a hat or a pair of gloves between New York and Maine. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I feel like a hand a hand knit pair of scarves or of socks rather is just an ultimate luxury item. Yeah. Like I, I would, I've had one pair. You kind of blow through them though, right? Because yeah. they're not as tight as a machine right. woven right. thing. Um, I had one; it was great, and then it was over. I mean, do you think there's there's room for a Kickstarter for that? No. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's just stick to weird alternative wallets and uh, art projects. Those are my favorite kinds of Kickstarters. Yeah, I mean, Kickstarter seems to have done pretty well with those. Although, we'll yeah. see. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I know some people at, uh, at Kickstarter, and I, I think Kickstarter's done great things for uh, a lot of interesting projects. Um, but I, you know, I wonder, I wonder when its time will come, because I feel like all things kind of... I mean, you, so, I mean, w- w- this is going to get, like, media deep, but, like, <laughs> you start talking about... I mean, Kickstarter is really interesting because alternate funding for things that you're used to is a theme throughout media and throughout all sorts of industries right now. Like in media, it used to be 10 years ago that uh, you're 100% funded by advertising. That's not the case anymore. And similarly, products, you know, if you want to develop a, you know, Harry's water widget, right? You used to be able to create that thing, patent it, and go to a company get some investment, maybe sell it. But these days, a lot of companies are asking for people who have an idea and, and a really well-formed idea to, to put it on Kickstarter first as an alternative form of marketing because you actually, it goes out there. If it gets selected by the sort of Kickstarter editor's picks, you get a lot of exposure, the blogs pick it up. And the actual funding that you get on Kickstarter isn't really as much about, in every case, isn't as much about producing this product to its end as it is about showing a demand for the thing. Sure, it's the market test. Yeah. So instead of manufacturing a thousand and trying to go out and pound the pavement and sell them, right. you sell them first. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, then you don't have to make any. And often you'll have investors who are demanding that as a as a milestone right. to, to unlock some funding. So I sure. think I think it's pre- I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's interesting. I have a checkered history with Kickstarter. I I have uh, I've banned. Uh, I, I've actually not allowed us to write about Kickstarter products at both Gizmodo and Wired. Um, 
rules are kind of softening as we understand what it is, just especially in the early days of Kickstarter, you know, around 2011, 2012, it was like, it was like a bonanza of I wish this had existed products that never came to fruition. <laughs> and, um, and so it, it got to be a trap for a lot of blogs really quickly. Sure. Are we talking about food? I mean, we're talking about everything. So we can talk about food. Do you have a favorite? Uh, do you, I mean, are you, you are looking out into Roberta's. Do you yeah. see something you want to have for lunch when we're done with the show? Yeah, I was actually about to jack that lady for her pizza because it looks great, obviously. <laughs> I'm, I'm a New Yorker, and um, yeah, I, was, I was talking to a friend who has a, a strong interest, interest in food. And I was like, what is your favorite food? He's like, come on, pizza. I was like, yeah. You know, yeah, like, I mean, pizza is a great food. So, I mean, that that actually was that was one of my topics. I, you know, we were kind yeah. of just rolling with rolling. Feast years often just kind of rolls with whatever topic mm-hmm. uh, topic we end up talking about. But pizza was something I wanted to bring up because yeah. you are a, you are a native New Yorker. Yep, um, and uh, I've probably eaten at lots of pizza places. Um, I, I find myself, of course, and I'm sure lots of heritage hosts have this happen because we're at Roberta's. Pizza is often a topic that I yeah. talk about with my guests. So, for you, uh, what's the perfect pizza? Well, it's not Roberta's. I hope that's hope this isn't being pump, <laughs> pumped out into the dining room. I think it's good. It's good pizza. I mean, all pizza is good pizza, right? They, sure. It's very hard to find bad pizza. Yeah. Even um, that weird Pennsylvania pizza that's made with cheddar cheese. Do you know about that no, stuff? No, I don't. Um, my my Popside creative director is from a, a town or went to went to went to college in Pennsylvania or something. And there's this there's this Pennsylvania style of pizza that I'm, I'm not going to be able to to recall that is like served it's like a sheet tray pizza kind of like you get at L&B and like the sauce is a little bit sweet and it's got cheddar cheese on it and, hmm. and normally you know I think if you're a pizza purist I'd make you want to vomit a little bit cheddar I'm like, cheese let's, on let's, your pizza let's yeah. give it a shot you know um, I love I love Stouffer's French bread pizza uh, <laughs> I think it's a great pizza but my um, my favorite pizza is Arturo's yeah on, on it's actually the first phone number my mother let me call <laughs> Besides my home number from school, you know, I still remember it's six seven seven three eight two zero, and it's a uh, one hundred six West Houston Street, and um, and, and yeah, I mean, pizza is such a personal thing for New Yorkers. Yep, I've stopped arguing about it, although I used to argue about it a lot because I've kind of just realized that it, it literally is about like what pizza did you have first? You will fall in love with it, and that will be the perfect pizza. For sure, you. if the first pizza you ever had was that weirdo Pennsylvania pizza, that's, that's going to your be pizza. your favorite pizza. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, uh, the first pizza in New York City that I remember having was John's on Bleecker. Very and so, you know, I have a very, I have a real soft spot mm-hmm. for for John's pizza. Um, there was a place called the the Katona. I think it was called Katona Pizza in Katona, uh, in Westchester, where I grew up. And I have fond memories of of that place and of pizza and root beer. And so that's the other thing for me is that I often associate root yes. beer as the proper soda to consume or the proper beverage with pizza. I don't think that's subjective. I mean, I think it's some kind of beer. Yeah. <laughs> and if you and when you're a kid, you know, you're not really supposed to have too much beer. No, not too much. Maybe a little. Um, and so, I mean, you know, so for Arturo's, for you, is it a memory of the pizza itself or of the experience of going there? Because for me, when I think of Arturo's, I could not sit here right now and describe to you what their pizza tastes like. But I've been to Arturo's many times. Mm-hmm. And it is, a, for me, it's about the experience. It's the fact that it's a restaurant that has a piano yeah. in it. It's the fact that it's a restaurant that doesn't feel like it's got a concept. Um, I mean, I guess maybe... Arturo had a concept in 1957 when he opened it, mm-hmm. and his concept was to have live music and coal-fired pizza, right? Uh, but, Arturo's is an Italian restaurant, yeah, right. Like, and and their pizza is is the best thing on the menu, 
But the second best thing on the menu is probably the clams Arturo, which are these delicious sort of like clams casino knockoff with every shellfish that they can get shoved, shoved in there and then breaded and roasted in the pizza oven with, I think, an acre of olive trees worth of oil. Um, <laughs> And, and it's, uh, for me, I, I can describe Arturo's pizza really well. It has a salty sauce. They use a fairly cheap mozzarella, but it strings well. The crust is dry, not over leavened, and does a really nice job of maintaining its integrity on the bottom of the pie without being too cracker-like around the edge. And for me, it's, it's almost... And you know, this is something that New York does really well, which is have a couple different textures in one kind of bread. Yep. Like if you were going to Vesuvio's and you were getting their their old, you know, you know, not not the baguettes because that's an Italian or it's not an Italian bread, but whatever their equivalent of a small thin loaf was. The great thing about it was the nice amount of air inside of the dough, but that really nice hard crust. And if you were going to Dina De Luca in the '90s and getting their sourdough pullman, which is still for me, the apex of all bread, it had this amazing differentiation of textures around the top, which was shiny, the bottom, which was rough, and then the inside, which had that sourdough density. Um, bagels. A good bagel is defined by not just the difference of the sort of shiny outside and the soft interior, but also the difference between the, the, the hard bottom, which is the... I will. I will fight anybody who tells me that's not the best part of the bagel <laughs> and the sort of like crackly top. Yeah. And, um, that's a good point. I mean, you know, for me, when I think of when I think of like the Bialy, mm-hmm. right, the Bialy, same thing. Yeah. The Bialy has sort of a harder bottom and almost like a pillow yeah. on top. But then you have that circle in the middle with the onions or the garlic. That's a completely different texture. It's different, chewy. Kind, different piece of bread. Yeah. And that's a magical New York thing. Like I actually... You know, if you go to other cities who have their famous carbs, I don't think you get that as much. Like, the, you know, when I, I used to live in San Francisco, obviously San Francisco sourdough is famous. It's the same on the bottom as it is on the top. Yeah. For me, San Francisco sourdough is about the flavor. Yeah. It's not the texture. It is so, so sour. Yeah, yeah exactly. Which, which and, I love. And that yeast, that native yeast mm-hmm. that was captured by whomever, I don't know, someone probably got thrown off a whaling ship. It was Ponce de Leon. Was it? Sure. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so you grew up in New York yep. and then, uh, moved, lived in San Francisco for a while, mm-hmm. right? Seven um, years total. Yeah. And then now you're back. Yep. Um, and do you feel like you will live somewhere else again or is New York really the apex for you, the pinnacle of existence? I, I mean, we get a lot of, I hopefully get a long time yeah. on this rock. I, I don't Hope like so. to, I don't really like to predict that. Sure. Um, I feel like it's a big world. And if I get the opportunity, I would love to live somewhere else. I've lived in Japan also when I was a kid. Um, I went to school upstate New York. And and every place is really special. And uh, San Francisco is still very special to me. I think I would, you know, if I could just pick a place out of the air, I might might try to go to the Pacific Northwest. You know, the Hudson Valley is a really amazing place just aesthetically. Yeah. And I feel like the Pacific Northwest is like big Hudson Valley. Sure. It's like the same kind of severe geography, but just like bigger. Yep. I, I really dig that. So I don't know, maybe there. Maybe and a lot there. of fertile land. It's very green. Yeah. yeah. I was reading the biography of Ulysses S. Grant, and he got stationed in Portland. And him trying to make a living off of all the various like 
things he grew there was the funniest part of the biography. He like tried to grow potatoes, but they went rotten. And he like sold lumber and was like hauling it into cart all while this at the same time like working for the army. Huh. Um, but that was so that would have been before uh, the Civil War. Before the Civil War, yeah. When okay, so it was really the I mean after that was West Point serious pioneer. I yep. mean like it was Fort Portland. Huh. And you know like coffee shops hadn't opened yet. <laughs> I think it was even hard to get a pair of Nikes back then. Uh, probably. And Adidas, definitely not. No, no. That's German. <laughs> but there were probably still a lot of homeless people. <laughs> right? I mean, because essentially when yep. you're a pioneer, you get there, you're homeless. Mm-hmm. Right? And you have to build your home. That's a very good point. <laughs> they so, have a long tradition. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, other, uh, you know, so... Aside from uh, aside from food, mm-hmm. you have a you have had a, a long uh, a long career in media yep. of various kinds, um, starting out mostly online, right? Digital? Actually, no, I started in print. Oh. Um, so I've I guess I've been doing this fifteen years since I graduated college, and um, my first job was at Us Weekly, and I was a production assistant there. I was. I think they just took pity on me because I had been an intern at the magazine and was like, I was like, I kind of need a job now. And they gave me a production job and I did some retouch, but I wasn't very good at it. And I dropped low res images into the layout so they could be circulated. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. Print is uh, increasingly rarefied anyway. Um, and then after that, I got a job actually at Popular Science. And I was working on the print product doing the, the what's new section, which is the gadgets and gear. From there, I went to, you know, I, I made it my stated goal to scoop wired every single issue because that was back, you know, this is 2002, 2003 to 2006. Back then, you actually could scoop right. in a print monthly magazine, which is impossible now. <laughs> um, and I did. I scoop wired every issue. And finally, I got a call saying, like, you are annoying, but perhaps we could have a conversation about you coming out here. And so I, I ended up going out to Wired. But when I was at Wired, and, and this was sort of the same, it, it was less as, acute to me when I was at PopSci, maybe because it was a, a smaller staff, but I, I found that I got really bored at Wired doing print work. Like I was responsible for between like three and sometimes as much as like 20 or 25 pages an issue. And that's a four-week cycle. It takes me about to edit a piece for one of these front-of-book stories, which are the, the bitty stuff up front. It takes me anywhere from, like, five minutes to, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes an hour to, to really, like, edit. And, and you know, I would go back and forth with my writers, but you would put your comments in and you send it back to the writers. And I've always been pretty quick. But then you weren't doing anything. And, you know, mm. I would be, like, do a little bit of research for the next issue or think about stories, pitching them. But... I ended up working, I think it was around, like, it felt like I was working, like, five days a month. Um, <laughs> now, I mean, it, is that because of the nature of the work, or do you think that the landscape had changed, was starting to change at that point, so that the the print thing was not as, I mean, you couldn't scoop anymore, it wasn't, you know... I mean, back the then, you could still scoop you it. Could still. Um, I mean, back then, it was still, anybody who was doing gadget stuff was still basically just ripping the blogs off, because... Most of our readers didn't know what blogs were. Sure. Um, and so, you know, I, it was basically like I'd read Gizmodo a lot or read Engadget um, and then find some products and try and get, like, 
if there was a rumor about a product and I had a good contact at the company, I would call the company and be like, hey, is this thing real? I want to write about it in now, but we will do magazine time travel and nobody will know about it for three months. And they'd be like, oh, yeah. So, you know, you get leads from the blogs and stuff, but it just was, I don't know, maybe I wasn't, maybe I wasn't that good at print work. Maybe I was too good at print work, but it just didn't take me that long. And I wasn't, um, the way Wired worked is very much a ladder and you would work your way up to features. And I hadn't worked my way up to features, especially in that first year. So very quickly, I found myself on the other side of what um, a, a Wired alum named Joel Johnson called the Berlin Hall. Um, the Berlin Hall was basically, you know, when Wired was founded by Jay Metcalf and Louis Rossetto, they, they had a website, one of, the first, one of the first media websites. But when they sold to Condé Nast, um, Condé Nast didn't want to buy the website. <laughs> and so they sold the website to Lycos. So oh, Wired.com was owned by Lycos and Wired Magazine was owned by Condé Nast. But, uh, like, Lycos moved Wired.com onto the same floor as Wired Magazine in the same building. And so they were on the same floor of the same building, ostensibly doing the same stuff, <laughs> owned but by owned people. by different companies. That's and I so arrived. Strange. It's so weird. I, I got to Wired in January of 2006, right when, right just immediately after Condé Nast had bought Wired.com back from Lycos. <laughs> and... They were like I remember literally having a conversation with somebody about putting the servers on a truck, and and moving them over to where Condé Nast had their servers from where Lycos had their servers and Wired.com was like down for two days. Right now that would give me a seizure um, if my website was down, down for, for two, two days. days. Yeah. Um, but they, um, but yeah. So I, I I made my way over there and was talking to some people and they were and I was like I kind of I like cars and I had been like one of the automotive editors at Popular Science and I was like I want to I want to review cars but they won't give me the cars if I don't write about them and I can't do car reviews in every single issue of Wired so they gave me the opportunity to use this sort of this this property Autopia which they were having talks about shutting down and and from there I me and another guy who worked at Wired we we made Autopia one of the highest trafficked sections of Wired.com and I fell in love with digital that was maybe a longer answer than you were looking for to that no question. no it's it, I mean it's, it's fascinating to hear the that that sort of history about how wired.com was different from the magazine um so fast forward to Not now so stuff. so now you <laughs> so now you are at the head of popular science yes uh back working there again yep um and it has gone it was a monthly mm-hmm. for a long time now mm-hmm. it's a bi-monthly yep um which i'm sure is relaxing for you as a as an editor yeah, I mean, like I said, I get bored if I don't have enough work. So I tend to, especially now that I have the opportunity to, I tend to make sure that there's plenty of work to do. Um, today I spent, today and yesterday I spent, you know, a couple hours interviewing for a story I'm doing for the website. Um, I love to write. I think I probably have more bylines in my magazine than most editors-in-chief do, but whatever, it's fun. Um, well, so so because rules. the magazine now is mm-hmm. bi monthly. Um, how does that relate? How do the how do the stories that show up in the magazine relate, or do they to the stories that show up online? So, um, first of all, it's, it's bi-monthly, but they're all double issues, so they're twice as long as they would have been if they were. Um, I don't pick it up and actually feel how thick it is. <laughs> this is 2017, man. It's not polite. Um, you know, magazines aren't getting much thicker. Um, Mostly, uh, I just wanted to look at the cover. Oh, okay, yeah, hot. Uh, the um, so basically, there, there's still plenty to plenty of work to go around. Um, but my idea was to make the magazine more of a cultural artifact than a periodical. Uh, 
If you want periodical, go on the web. It doesn't make sense to have the organizing principle of a magazine be the date at which it was published. To me, that's backwards. Um, because if I want people to hold on to this magazine, well, if I don't want them to hold on to it, I might as well just make a website. The right. only reason to print something, to use the natural resources and to expel, expel the carbon and to actually do it is there are two reasons. One is to have 100% control over the, the, the reading environment. So I know that like you're not going to pinch to zoom in on anything. Like it's that, that one cell of a comic that we write is going to be in the upper left-hand corner of the page. Always, yeah. It's, it's my 100% control over that experience. But also, you know, it's the opportunity to make something that people will hold on to and keep. And so I, I, my pitch when I took over PopSci was like, let's stop doing things that are newsworthy. Like let's stop making it newsy and start making it topical. So this issue is about weather, you know. Um, those stories in there are designed to be true for years. So if you don't so what a, you're saying is that popular science is not fake news. No, not fake. Well, sometimes. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I, I kind of self-identify with fake news as news that Trump doesn't like. Yeah. Um, and so some of this is, is his fake news. It would sure. be inconvenient for him. Um, and then we use the website as our more temporally relevant stuff. So it, stories from the web, and especially reporting from the web, trickles up into stories for the magazine. All of our editors and writers work on, on all platforms, whether it is YouTube or Snapchat or the magazine or popsci.com. Um, you need to make sure that you're, you're sort of using all parts of the buffalo in that way. But it's the presentation that's different. You know, a print product, you have the ability to really worry a story until it is polished to a hard shine. Web stuff's going to be rougher and readier. You know, I, I prefer sure. a day two story, so I'm not quite a news magazine on the web. Um, I like to react to things and move the ball forward. So if the news is like Harry Rosenblum on Feast Your Ears, um, I, would, I would move that, that topic forward with an angle like Harry Rosenblum talks to people about food on Feast Your Ears. It's not just a, um, you know, a, a food show. Right. Um, and, and, and then I'd do it the next day after the news broke yep. because that way – and it was, it was not the best example – but I was trying to be nice to you. Um, <laughs> but but basically the idea being that like you can always know that you'll that you'll find something a little bit more insightful on popsci.com than you would on a place that's just news. Right. If you want just news, go somewhere else. Right. Yeah. We're going to take a short break uh, here from one of our sponsors here at Heritage. And when Thank we come back, we're going to talk about uh, technology and cooking. Cool. I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years, and plus, each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be, and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife, Charlie, started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today, they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an employee stock ownership plan, or ESOP, 
Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job. And, and obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and today I have Joe Brown in the studio with me, editor-in-chief of Popular Science. And uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, Joe's history in, uh, in media. And now I want to turn to, uh, I'm going to read a short piece uh, as I sort of workshop a, a format change that's coming on the show. But I'm going to read a uh, piece from a book called Consider the Fork, A History of How We Cook and Eat by B. Wilson. came out in 2012. Uh, and this is about a piece of kitchen technology and sort of why it's important. And then we'll, we'll talk about it. When electric rice cookers arrived in Japanese and Korean homes in the 1960s, life changed. Previously, the whole structure of the evening had been dictated by the need to produce steamed, sticky white rice, the bedrock of every meal. The rice needed soaking, washing, and careful watching as it cooked in an earthenware pot lest it burn. The rice cooker, a bowl with a heating element underneath and a thermostat, removed all this work and worry. In today's versions, you just measure out the rinsed rice and water, flip the switch. The thermostat tells the cooker when the water's been absorbed, and it switches from hot to warm. More deluxe cookers keep the rice warm for many hours and even have a time delay function so you can set the cooker before you leave for work. Rice cookers were an ideal match between culture and technology. Early models replicated the slow simmering of a traditional earthenware Japanese rice pot. Unlike the microwave, which changed the entire structure of family meals, rice cookers enabled Asian families to eat the same traditional meals, but with far greater ease. Where There Are Asians, There Are Rice Cookers is the title of a 2009 monograph by Yoshiko Nakano. Forget TVs, rice cookers are the most important electrical gadget in the Japanese home. Yet it's all happened remarkably fast. Electric rice cookers belong to the made-in-Japan electronics boom of the 1950s. The first automated rice cooker was launched by Toshiba in 1956. In 1964, less than 10 years later, the rate of rice cooker ownership in Japan was 88%. From Japan, they traveled to Hong Kong, mainland China, and South Korea, where new cookers were designed with an added pressure to cook the rice softer, which is how Koreans like it. In tiny rural kitchens in China, the rice cooker may be the only stove used to make gooey kanji, rice porridge, as well as steamed rice. What rice cookers are not so good for, thus far, are long-grain rices of India and Pakistan. Basmati grains should be fluffy and separate. The slow steaming of the rice cooker does long grains no favors, and they turn gummy which may explain why India does not yet fully share China's rice cooker addiction. So I wanted to read that because I thought it was a real interesting piece about the idea that, you know, how a piece of technology in the kitchen, like a microwave, 
completely changed the way people eat and the way we cook, and that the rice cooker was designed to replicate mm-hmm. a traditional method and just make it easier. I was thinking about my time in Japan and the role of a rice cooker in our house, and the, the, the rice cooker was always full. There was always rice in the rice cooker. Um, I don't know how that magic happened. <laughs> my host mother was, um, was a pretty accomplished cook. But, you know, I, I, for a while I thought you would just, because I didn't know how these things work, and this is 1994, so it's not like I had seen a rice cooker before in America. I thought you just kept adding rice to the rice cooker. <laughs> and, 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 I mean, it was sort of, it was, it was a miracle. There was always rice, and it was the center of the house. Like, yeah. it had its own, I was actually thinking about this while they were talking about that. It, not only was the rice cooker the center of the kitchen, but the kitchen furniture was built around the rice cooker. Like the shelf that all of the food stuff was on, like kind of like a stereo cabinet from the 70s. There was a special shelf that had like enough room to open the lid and there was a hole in the back for the cord to go out and a place on the side for the spoon to rest. So it was an installed appliance. Yeah, it was it was like a stove. Yeah. Um, I was trying to think of what would I want to have always cooked in my kitchen right now if I could have like would it be like a pizza cooker? And, like, you'd open it and there'd always just be, like, a slice of pizza in there. Like, what magical device would allow me to to sort of build my kitchen life around an always available cooked ingredient? I can't think of one in in the American pantry. Yeah. Because we rely so much on dried goods. Right. Right. I mean, I use – I have a rice cooker yeah. and I, you know, I hadn't I, – I mean, I've been using it for years. And, and until I read this piece recently, I hadn't really thought about it the importance of it in the kitchen, but it's something that, you know, especially in the winter, I mean, I'm, I use it sometimes twice a day wow. where I will set up oatmeal when I go to bed and mine mm-hmm. does have a timer. So I set it to be ready and it plays, it's, it's Japanese rice cooker. It's sojirushi and it plays a little ditty, which serves almost like an alarm clock. So I have it set. I usually get up before my kids, but I have it set for seven ten to be ready and it plays a little tune. So I'm in the hmm. other room working or typing or emailing, and I hear the tune, and I know it's time to wake the kids up. Huh. <laughs> and then oatmeal's ready, and so that's breakfast. And then often after I take them to school or while I'm cleaning up from breakfast, I will set up rice to be ready at 6 o'clock, which is when we right. usually walk through the door to come home. Huh. And so there's rice ready, and I have found that it is great to use for other grains as well. So polenta. Works great in the rice cooker. Um, some there are some grains that don't work. Quinoa is like hit or miss. Depends on the quinoa. You have mm-hmm. to wash it really well. Um, you have to wash all quinoa really well. Yeah, but I just I find in the rice cooker if you don't, it really is a huge mess if you mm. are not very careful with it. Um, and I just you know the the piece made me think about sort of technology in the kitchen. And for me, I mean, I don't have a microwave. It is the only thing other than a stove, really. That, I mean, you know, we have a blender and all these things, but it is the one that gets the most use probably after the stove. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, technology in my kitchen, and it's everywhere. I was actually talking to um, Meathead Goldwyn yesterday. Do you know him? No, I don't. He runs a really cool website called AmazingRibs.com, um, which is it's far and away the best barbecue website on the Internet. It is so systematic. They rate every grill. They pull no punches. Um, and he, his thing, he was, I was like, one tip, and I'm writing a, you know, a quick web piece for the 4th of July, like, science barbecue tips, working title, if you have any other ideas, let me know. Um, <laughs> popular barbecue? Popular barbecue. <laughs> um, and he was like, it's 2017. 
get a digital thermometer. Yeah. Uh, and then I was thinking about it, and you know, he's like, you know that one that you have in your cupboard that has the dial on it? Take it, put it in the driveway, run it over with your car. Go get something that's real and it's good. It's interesting. From there forward, I have like five different thermometers that I use. I love my hand blender. As you know, I like to sous vide quite a bit. Yep. Similarly to your rice cooker, I just find that it, it's a, a great way to time meals. Yeah. Um, um, in the in the uh, the pre-show questionnaire that I sent to you. Um, that was fun. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, one of the questions is table for one or dinner party, and your answer was dinner party, that food not shared is not food, it's nutrition. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I... Um yeah, I think it's the way I grew up, but like food for me is a social, a social, um, it's a social nutrient as much as it is a, an, an actual nutritional nutrient. Yeah. Um, sitting around, even if you're just watching TV with somebody while you eat, it's, it's better than doing it alone. Like I, somehow, like if I'm sitting in like the same food, the same TV show, it's depressing if it's just me. But if I'm, I'm doing it with somebody, it's, it's better. Um, and so at, because of that, like I tend to, when I eat alone, like not eat as well. Um, at, you know, I, I drink Soylent, which is, I think a pretty controversial thing for somebody who loves food to do, but I just find that I get like, I get like really sad. Um, if I'm, I'm eating at, especially at work where I tend to work through lunch, just like, why would I bother having some like nice bit of, of meal just for myself? I can't be like, Hey, that's pretty good. Right. Like at least with Soylent, I would, I, I can turn to my imaginary friend and be like, this stuff's pretty boring, huh? Yep. <laughs> but I can stay at my desk and yeah. I'll drink it and then have some water and yeah. keep going. I, I also find that I get really angry at bad food. Um, sure. Well, I think that, I think that, yeah, the disappointment with, with oh. bad food and, and it's, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think that there's something, there's something there where if you are eating alone, and you're like, ah, oh, I'm just by myself. I'm just going to grab this thing. And then if it's not good, you're kind of like, I don't know. I, I find that I'm kind of, uh, I'm sort of mad at myself. And I'm like, well, yeah, that yeah. wasn't worth it. Well, I mean, there's so much more weighing on it, right? Yeah. Um, also, like, I don't know, for people like me who work in an office, uh, I don't know how many of many people who listen to Heritage Radio Network in the middle of a, of a Wednesday share offices also, maybe a lot. Um, but... You know, if I don't bring lunch, which I never do because I, I don't, um, I will I'll go out sometimes and get lunch from one of the various places around me. And it's like a salad and it's like 15 bucks. And then the dressing sucks and the lettuce is all corroded. And you bring it back to eat at your desk anyway. Yeah. Right? It's, it's like I get really upset about that meal because I'm eating alone. I'm working through lunch and then the food's not very good. So I have just taken that variable out of play and I drink nutrition. I drink basically insure. I think that's what Soylent's just like Silicon yeah. Valley insure, right? Yeah. Like I drink that for lunch and it's fine. Um, and it's not like the greatest meal of my life, but, but it doesn't need to be. Right? No, but I, mean, I get it's... through, I get to work through lunch. Yeah. Especially when you deal with people in different time zones, 1230 is a nice time to call somebody on the West coast. Yep. Yep. Do you, uh, do you like going, do you, do you ever go out to eat alone in a restaurant? Uh, no, I don't. I mean, I do sometimes, especially when I'm traveling for a story or something, but sure. I don't like it. Yeah. I find that I, I just inhale the meal. I usually bring a book to try to to like to pass time, but like I, I can't do both things. Yeah, for me, it really. Uh, I was thinking about it while when you were talking about you know the experience of of sad desk lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, 
for me, it's it has to be something that also is entertaining, mm-hmm. right? So there are a few, there are some restaurants like the Oyster Bar in Grand Central. I love going there alone huh. because I can sit at the counter and watch. Watch that weird guy who talks to himself the whole yeah, time. Yeah, or the like. I that's love me him. usually. You like watching me. No, I mean the guy behind the. There's a oh, guy behind the, the counter who runs yes. a pan roast. Yes, yes. Who's continually yep. in a like a multi-year yeah. argument with himself. Yeah. So, I mean, there's that guy to watch, or you watch the waitresses, you watch the people come in and try to figure out the scene. There's a lot of coming and going. It's a nice place to sit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I don't I don't like going and sitting in a restaurant. Like, I wouldn't come to Roberta's alone, I don't think. It's just I just find I'd be out of here in five minutes. Exactly, yeah. And so then what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, when I'm at home and I eat alone, like, if, if Christine's out of town or something, I have a couple of, like, go-to things that I'll make myself. I tend to, I, I love lentils, and she does not love cilantro. So I make a lime and cilantro doll that is a just, I'll make like a giant pot of that and eat off that for a while. That's a good solo dish. Um, I also experiment with dishes because I'm the cook, and so I don't I want to make something that like um, is bad, especially <laughs> for Christine. Um, so I'll, I'll experiment with stuff, but I also, I love chicken pot pie. Like, and I love a very specific artisanal style of chicken pot pie called Marie Callender's. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a pretty, um, pretty obscure In this style. day and age. I like it because it's got the crust on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, you know, I think you need to have an industrial chicken pot pie where they, like, like roll out a frozen puck of filling that you can then wrap in, a, in yeah. the crust and then bake to make that happen. I don't know how to make one. Um, but, yeah. That's a thing that I only eat when I'm alone. Also, uh, the last time Christine left town, I started experimenting with uh, adzuki beans, oh. which Kalustians. Yes, which is as Harry said, it's 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 a it's it's like a culinary tourist destination. This place, yeah, they have like five rows of beans. Yeah, and I think you know, like they probably have like nine kinds of dates, which I've only ever seen in like California where they grow them. Yeah, I don't like their dates, honestly. Oh yeah, I, I I've gone through all of them and I haven't found good. I didn't ones buy yet. any; I just yeah. remembered. I um I, I recently went to the UAE. Yeah, and I for a the World Government Summit, which was a really cool event. And re, you you think about one thing that was super interesting to me that I hadn't really thought about before, like how do you replace socially booze? Yeah, and you know you got to have a like a bar is not just a place to get people drunk. It is a a, a a spot of like congregation. It's a focus for laying out an event, and the way in the Emirates, and that's the the only um, predominantly Islamic country I've been to since I was um, a kid. The way they do it, they do it two ways. One is a juice bar. Um, they, cutting to the end, they replace alcohol with sweets. Um, oh, and it. and so and actually, so the social activity is around around consumption sweets. of sweets. And so, dessert there is amazing. And I had one of our hosts had arranged for an incredible date bar, including some of his own personal dates from his own uh, date farm tree. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and there were probably forty different kinds of dates. Wow! And then a guy standing next to the date bar explaining which one was which and what was good there were little dates and big dates and sweet dates and tart dates and like after that you know boringly i liked the medjool the best but thank god yeah because you can uh, get those here because i can get them (laughs) i actually got some at a at like a special in the the dubai mall mall of the emirates i got the one that has the ski slope in it yeah 
I went to the date store there and got like a kilogram, no, two kilograms of um, of medjool dates that that we kept and, and ate off of for about a month. They were pretty delicious. But after that, like I went to Klustian's and I and I started buying their dates, and it just there's something about them when you start to see the skin get a little bit white and crackly. They're dry. Right. And the ones and too that, dry. Yeah, right. the ones that I got in the Emirates were not. Um, so I was really, I was really bummed about that. I'm, I'm still on the hunt, and maybe one of your listeners knows where 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 the date hookup is. Like, hook, hook me up. <laughs> I'm, I'm Joe M F Brown on everything. Yeah. So uh, we're we're just about out of time. I was going to get to that. So yeah, you can okay. follow Joe at Joe M F Brown. Hi. Uh, Twitter, Instagram. Yep. Other. Any any old platforms that don't exist anymore? People can find yeah, give old me stuff. on Friendster, man. Oh, sweet. No, yeah. uh, I don't have time for all these social networks. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's a lot. It's also a job. Yeah, well, I mean, it's part of your job. Yes, right? it is. Uh, work is uh, popsci dot yep. com. Please visit popsci.com. dot com. Also, we're up on newsstand because you find people are buying our magazine. But you sh- if you haven't joined that trend recently, go check it out. The magazine's really fun right now. We're having a good time with it. Uh, it is, and, and the uh, the cover is great. Uh, and and one thing I did want to mention, even though we are sort of running out of time, I mean, Joe sort of touched on this, and I I alluded to the idea of sort of fake news. But I think that um, the direction that Joe has taken popular science to have an issue that's all about weather in the face of having a climate change denier. Uh, as the leader of the free world is really important. And it's important that this is an artifact that says, look, climate change is happening in 2017. If my kids look at this in 20 years and they say, oh, man, I remember back then. God, remember when it was 80 degrees in the summer? It was Mm -hmm. so cold. So, Well, thank you for that. That's better feedback than I've been getting from my readers who one of them called me a a treasonous person for for believing in this climate change hoax. Um, You know, we're trying to change some minds. It's a big country. Yeah. Let's not forget. Really, though, we wrote that magazine for the president. For yeah. sure. Did like, you send I, him a copy with yes. a personal note? Yes. Nice. I hope he reads it. I don't think he will. Probably not. I hear he doesn't like to read. Yeah. I mean, honestly. So. I know. I heard that, too. Um, we could, I could read the whole thing out loud, and he could listen to it. Maybe that'd be good to yeah. do on Breitbart. Yeah. Sweet. Well, thanks, Joe, for coming thank on you, the Harry. show. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears. Um, big thank you to Vitor Hirsch for engineering the show today. Uh, please take a moment to like the show on iTunes. You can reach out to me if you have any questions. You can find me at e- via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. Um, have a make a shameless plug here. My first book comes out August 1st. It's Woo! called Vinegar Revival. It's a guide to making and using vinegar at home. You can pre-order it at vinegarrevival.com, Amazon, or from your local bookstore. And uh, as you may know, this show is only possible thanks to member donations. We would not be able to reach you every week without the generosity of HRN members, like hopefully some of you. But if you're not a member yet, I encourage you to sign up. We're currently in the middle of our summer membership drive. Becoming a member is super easy. comes with limited edition summer sweat. You get cool t-shirts, drink koozies, pins, uh, and you can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member if you go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now, and let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter 
at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.